Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to Crossroads. If you're a guest this morning, uh, thank you uh, for being here. My name is Ryan, and I'm the lead pastor at Crossroads Church, which means I get to serve our volunteers and our staff as we work towards peace on earth, right? That's what we're all about here, following the peacemaking path of Jesus. So thank you for being here. If you are newer to Crossroads uh, and you'd like to connect, maybe have a cup of coffee, happy hour, whatever it might be, my cell phone number is right there in the program. Just shoot me a text, and we'll set up a time to get together. I apologize that you're having to endure this on video, that I'm not able to be there today. We are away at a conference this weekend, and so uh, it's good to be together even if I'm not there together in person. And uh, we've been walking through really this this fun series called Ted Lasso, the Book of Lasso, Ted Talks, excuse me, the Book of Lasso, and we've been looking at some major themes from this show that took the world by storm and how they intersect with some of the really beautiful themes of our Christian tradition, uh, particularly themes that relate to how we relate to one another uh, and how we need one another in our lives and the power of forgiveness and optimism and things like that. And so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad we're together even though it's not together in person, right? But let me ask you a question as we get kind of started here with our topic from the day. Um, how many of you have ever kept a secret? Ever kept a secret? Raise your hand up nice and high. Look around, see the secret keepers in the room. Um, and, and let me ask you this question. Maybe you kept a secret from people you love. Maybe you kept a secret just from people you work with. And it wasn't necessarily because you thought you did something wrong or because it was bad, let's say. But maybe you just kept that thing a secret because you were afraid of how they might respond. You were afraid of maybe a stigma that was surrounding that detail about yourself. And whatever culture you were in, like your work culture or your family culture or your church culture, you knew that, they, that people would look at you differently. And maybe you feel like people would judge you. And so you kind of kept that a secret, right? The reality is that our cultures that we live in, that we exist in, they create stigmas, right? Cultures are those groups that form our identity, right? Our ethnic group, our religious group, hobbies, even things like our gender group, right? And these cultures, they inform us and they train us how to perceive people. And they also train us how to explain our differences. And when those differences, when there's something about us that's different than the way a group or a culture perceives in us, oftentimes what develops is what we call a stigma. And the stigma is kind of this mark of disgrace, and it really is associated with a, a circumstance or a quality or a person. And stigmas make people just feel different, right? And, and, and they can make a person feel different because of the way they live or the way they behave or the way they think or maybe something that happened in their past to them, right? And, and, and these, these stigmas tend to lead to stereotypes, prejudice discrimination. Think about concepts like mental health or sexuality or the type of job you have or maybe your marital status. Things like addiction or abortion or sexual abuse, right? A lot of times there's stigmas that get attached to those words, those experiences, and they produce labels, right? There's oftentimes a, a stigma around a mental health and people use words like crazy, right, instead of unhealthy. But stigmas produce labels, words like lazy or deviant or incompetent. In church world, a stigma label that often shows up is sinner, right? 
But here's the thing about our stigmas, right? If culture creates stigmas on people that are different or don't conform to the way that that group thinks, stigmas then create secrets, right? They create in us this fear that we have to kind of hold in something and not express our truth, right? Secrets, at the end of the day, they kind of hide our reality, right? And it's not necessarily just the stigma or because we believe in a stigma, but because we're just afraid of the stigma. We're afraid of what comes with it. And so we hide our truth because of the fear of that stigma, what people will think of us, or maybe we might feel a sense of rejection, or if someone finds out that I've been through divorce, or if someone finds out that I had to file bankruptcy, or if someone finds out that, that I'm part of the queer community, what are they going to do? How are they going to respond? And so we hold that secret, and here's the danger with our secrets is we hold those secrets long enough, they create shame in us. Right? And we can think about shame, right? Shame can be a, like, thought of as the impact or an emotion that sets into our hearts or our lives from a stigma, right? So feelings like embarrassment and self-hate, a sense of failure, and even hopelessness. And these, this sense of shame often leads to what, are, what is called a self-stigma, where we start to believe these things about ourselves that, that a group or a culture puts on us. And stigma, shame, and secrets, at the end of the day, they just lead to social disconnection and inner turmoil. People feel more isolated and separated from others, right, that can actually produce healing. But the stigma and the shame and the secrets, right, we disconnect from people like our family or our friends or our community. And this disconnection can have a negative impact on our own mental health, our physical health. We can start to feel worthless and lonely. And this really brings me to these two characters that I want to talk about today from the Ted Lasso story, Colin and Isaac. Now, Isaac is the team captain of the Richmond Greyhounds, and Colin is another player. And in every season, you kind of see in the first two seasons, Colin really struggles with his sense of self-worth. And it's kind of interesting because in season one, we find Colin as this character who's bullying Nate at the time, who is the, the kind of the, the, the kit man. And he's kind of bullying him, and it just seems strange that he's doing that. doesn't feel like it's authentic for him, like he's playing this part. And we learn about Colin later on in season three, after you kind of get to know him, after you get to kind of experience some of his like, own like, quirks about his, who he is and, and how he's like, really concerned with people's, the way people think about him. We learn that he's living with a secret. He's gay. And in season three, there's a journalist named Trent Krim who's following the team around and kind of documenting season, the season that they're having. And Trent discovers this secret, and Trent himself is gay. And they sit down during one episode, and they have a, a conversation about this. And, and, and Trent confides in Colin that, that he had to come out to his wife and his daughter in middle age. And, and he talked about how difficult that was, but he talked about how it's left them closer than ever. And then he says this, he says, my point is, it was really difficult to keep and hold that secret, but I'm not a professional athlete. How do you do it? And Colin in that moment kind of responds, well, my whole life is two lives, really. I've got my work life, and then I've got my dating life. And some guys think it's hot, and others say they don't care, but eventually they get tired and they move on. He says, and then the club brought in Dr. Sharon, who was a sports psychologist. 
And she made me realize that I have an ache, an ache for both my lives to be my only life. He said this, he said, I don't want to be a spokesperson. I don't want a bunch of apologies. All I want is when I win a match to be able to kiss my fella the same way the guys get to kiss their girls. It's really a beautiful conversation about his pain. It's a beautiful conversation about the secret that produces the pain and the stigma that he feels like he's fighting. And there's this sense of shame that has caused him to live what kind of the Bible sometimes calls a split-souled life. Now, stigmas and shame are as old as civilization. Like, as soon as human beings started walking around and having some sense of other, right, Right? As soon as we had cultures form and structures, political structures, and dominant systems right, that would use their power to define what is normal and, and to use their power to define what is different, stigmas and shame and secrets emerged. And those stigmas and shame and secrets produced pain and division. And what's really powerful about Christianity, right? At least radical Christianity from the historical Paul and, the, and the, the teachings of the historical Jesus is that this community that developed very early on was committed to creating spaces and communities that challenged the stigmas and the shame that their cultures had created. And whenever a culture creates stigma and shame, it always comes with the phrase, those people, right? And the beauty of like Paul's communities, and when we look at the authentic Paul from his seven authentic letters, is that Paul lived this radical way of love that tried to tear down those walls. We see that in a really famous passage where Paul writes, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. These two things that separated people in these other categories. And we see in Jesus how he takes and he deals with the people that his culture would call those people. And we have those people. You, have, you grew up with those people. Think for a second. I don't know who they were in your context, in your culture, in your religious upbringing. But I can tell you some of those people in history have been divorced people, poor people, queer people, single people, bankruptcy people, committed a felony people, go to church people, don't go to church people. These are all those people. And those people tend to suffer with secrets and shame and stigmas. But Scripture offers us some wisdom about this, especially in the life of Jesus. And what I want to do for just a few moments is kind of look at what Jesus did when he encountered the those people of his time. And the thing that we see consistently is that when Jesus encountered those people, the ones that carried a stigma, he championed them. That's what Jesus does. Jesus championed those people, right? Those people were the ones that the conventional wisdom of his religion labeled and stigmatized. One of those people that Jesus championed were the Samaritans. In Luke chapter 17, verses 30 through 37, we hear this story that's oftentimes called the Good Samaritan, which is a completely racist thing to say, as if a Samaritan being good would surprise people. We should call it the story of the true neighbor, because that's the question, right? What does it mean to love my neighbor? And who's my neighbor? And, and Jesus has asked this question. So he tells a story about a guy who's walking on a road and he gets beat up. And then a, a priest comes by and crosses over to the other side. And then a, a Levite comes by. Another religious leader comes by, crosses over the other side and ignores the person who's in peril. But then a Samaritan comes by. A Samaritan who was definitely part of a those people for the Jews 
who had been marginalized and categorized and shamed. And this story kind of culminates where Jesus asks the person who started the conversation, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, right? So the question is asked of him, who's my neighbor? He says, well, which one do you think is the neighbor? And the man who couldn't even come up with the word Samaritan, almost refused to say it. He said, the one who showed him mercy. What I love about this moment is that Jesus champions those people because Jesus turns those people, the Samaritans, into merciful heroes. Right? He takes a people group that his audience would certainly other, that his audience would say they don't belong, they don't fit in, and he turns them into the hero, and it's a hero of mercy. Now, now hang on to that because there's another group of the others that Jesus champions, and that's the poor. And in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, we have this really interesting story where Jesus is sitting with people, and he's sitting there and he's watching, and it says that he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. And many rich people put in large sums. So Jesus, imagine, is sitting at church. And he's watching the offering basket go by. And he's watching people put in all these big checks, right? And then he says that a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Right? So you got all these people that are putting in big money, big checks. And this poor widow, right, first of all, being poor right? Marginalized, othered, a widow also othered, stigmatized. She comes in and just takes these two small copper coins and she drops them in. And he calls his disciples over and he says, check this out. Look at this. Look at this. This poor widow, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. So it's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? That is crazy. And then Jesus looks on and he says, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now the poor and the widow was certainly a those people category in Jesus's culture. Something, they must have done something to deserve what they got. But here's what's beautiful about this story. Jesus turns those people, the poor, into generous heroes. He looks at a person who his culture would stigmatize as worthless, existing outside of the group. And he says, no, 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 this is a model of generosity and turns her into a hero. I love that. And there's one other group that was certainly the other in Jesus' day. And they were a category of people called the sinners. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, we get this word and we see and we meet a person who is a sinner. And what happens in this story is Jesus is invited to a religious leader's home, right? One of the in crowd, one of the people who quite honestly would be in a group like many of us who would start to define the others, right? Who would start to say those people. And so this man named Simon, who is a Pharisee, religious leader, he invites Jesus over for dinner. And while they're sitting there having dinner, a woman walks in and it's kind of a woman that everybody from the town, according to the story, knows her reputation, and it wasn't good. And so this woman breaks all these social protocols. She doesn't belong there. She's one of those people. And she came in, and she stood behind him at his feet, the text says, just weeping. And she began to bathe his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. And she was kissing his feet and anointing them with an ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, 
he said to himself under his breath, right? Because we would never do that, right? We would never talk about those people under our breaths. But that's what Simon does, this, this Pharisee. And he says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. What an absolutely devastating way to see someone, right? He says, if Jesus had any validity, he would know what kind of woman this is, a sinner. And Jesus like knew what was in his heart. And he speaks up and he says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And Simon says, okay, go ahead, teacher, speak, let's do this. And Jesus tells him a parable. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they couldn't pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which one of them will love him more? Another beautiful question Jesus asks. And Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, oh, you've judged rightly. You've thought correctly. That's great. And then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman here? And he said, you know, I entered your house, Simon, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. And you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. And so therefore, Simon, I'm going to tell you what, her many sins that you think are there, guess what? They're forgiven. And that's why she shows great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Right? So Jesus kind of enters into the space of the mind of Simon right, who wants to, to see and judge people based upon their actions and their behavior and say, well, this person is worthy and this person isn't worthy. So Jesus just kind of meets him in his own presuppositions. And at that moment, what Jesus does is he turned those people, the sinners, into loving heroes, heroes of love. That this woman who was the, the other, those people, he says, no, 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 hold on a second, Simon, you're not seeing correctly like this person knows what love really is. And so here's what I don't want us to miss as we, as we think about this idea of those people. Jesus revealed that those people in his culture were icons of God. What does that mean, an icon of God? An icon is something that stands in that represents something else that we can see. And Jesus said, hey, listen, here's the deal. The Samaritan, the poor, this woman who you call a sinner, they're all products of these cultural stigmas, yet Jesus saw in them the qualities of God, right? Because in Jesus, God represents, you know, God is non-judgmental. God's not greedy. God's not exclusive. What is God? Merciful, generous, and loving. And so Jesus basically says, listen, if you want to find God, you've got to look at the ones your culture believes are the least worthy of grace and forgiveness and mercy. And why do we look there? Because in them, we learn humility and patience and gentleness and love. Right? Jesus made them the heroes, the others, those people. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7 says this, I therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So to walk in a manner worthy of this call of Christ. And what does that look like? You walk with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And what is the bond of peace? 
this truth that there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. See, what maintains peace and unity in our world is when we recognize that God is the Father of all, the parent of all, the source of all, is above all, is through all, and is in all. And so we live this out in our everyday normal life by, first of all, just remembering that, that God is in all those people. God is in all those people that we want to stigmatize, that we want to, that we want to we want to say, hey, look at them. They're, 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 they're bad people. Look at their behavior. Look at their actions. And what our culture, whatever that might be, says, hey, listen, you know, there's a problem here. They don't behave like us. They don't look at, they don't think of, they've done things we think are wrong, right? That stigma, the, the way we start to get past those things is to first of all remember that God is in all those people. And we start to learn that destroying that stigma requires emotionally connecting with those people's pain. That if we're ever going to destroy the stigma, we have to get close enough like Jesus did and connect emotionally with their pain. Jesus had to connect emotionally with the pain of the Samaritans who would be set as outcasts and as other. He had to connect with, with this, this woman and get close to this woman and understand her life and the pain that she experienced. Jesus would get close to, to those who were labeled sinners, would get close to the widows and the orphans and understand their pain. And in doing so, that begins to destroy the stigma because we get to know people. And when we get to know people, we realize that they're more than the issues. And a great picture of how this works is this relationship with Isaac and Colin. Because Isaac and Colin are great friends in the show, really, really good friends, right? And, and they really, they count on one another. They're joking around all the time. They spend a lot of time together. But Colin has kept this secret from Isaac. And, and during the third season, Isaac accidentally finds out that Colin has kept this secret in a scene where he ends up with his phone. And in that moment, when he kind of realizes what he sees, he just kind of hands the phone back to him. And, and he's just kind of, he looks angry and confused, and he just walks away from his friend. And, and the way it's displayed is we're not really meant to understand exactly why, why he's mad. But what we find out in the next episode and what we see is that, you know, Isaac just begins to shut out Colin, his friend. He ignores him like he, he won't talk to him when they're in practice and, and he just kind of starts to keep his distance. In fact, in, in one scene, Colin invites him, says, hey, do you want to go grab a beer to have a chat? And Isaac just looks at him and says, no, and he walks away. And later in that episode, the team is getting ready to, to head out uh, for this match that they're getting ready to play. And all the players put their hands in, and Colin puts his hand in, and Isaac realizes that his hand is on Colin's, and he pulls his hand out of the pile, and he places it on top, like he doesn't even want to touch his hand. And you're just thinking, what is going on? And, and the camera shows Colin's face, and he just kind of sinks with rejection. And it just continues on. During the first half of this match, Colin makes an errant pass, and it leads to the other team scoring a goal. And in that moment, Isaac's anger just kind of comes out and he comes at him and he's yelling at him for the mistake that he made on the pitch. And they go down one nothing because of it. And the, the half ends and as they're walking off the field, there's this fan that's been screaming the whole time during the game, 
just angry and visceral, saying all kinds of stuff to the team whenever they would make a mistake, calling them names. And the team's kind of walking in, and they're just kind of unaffected by it until the fan screams this homophobic slur at them. And something inside Isaac snaps, and, and he leaps over the barrier, runs up, and he just starts to go after the fan. And security and other players, they jump in and they restrain Isaac, but the, the ref comes over and gives him a red card and ejects him from the game. They also kind of kick the fan out without really knowing what's going on. And, and the scene ends and it cuts to everybody in the locker room and they're just kind of in silence. And Isaac walks in and he's shaking. And he sits down and he's just literally, he's got fists made and he's shaking and he's so angry. And the team's like, what, what happened out there? What's going on? And they finally get to the bottom of it. And they finally hear about what this fan said. And the team starts to tell Isaac, yeah, man, I mean, that's unexcusable. But that's what fans do. They say things, you know, and your reaction isn't helping the team. And, and one of the teammates says, yeah, Isaac, you just have to ignore it. And when that teammate says that, Isaac kind of breaks his silence in the scene. And in just rage, he just screams out ignore it. I don't want to ignore it. And he says, what if one of us is gay? Huh? What about that? We shouldn't have to deal with this. I'll let you fill in the word that he uses. And with that, he kind of rips off his captain armband. He hands it to another player and he storms out of the locker room. And as he storms out, like Coach Ted and, and Roy, they kind of look at each other and Roy decides to go and to find Isaac. And he goes and he finds Isaac, and Isaac is sitting there in the boot room, just crying. And when he looks up and he sees Roy, he just immediately responds. He just says, no, get out, Roy. I don't need you to come in here. Just leave me alone. I messed up. I know it. I get it. I let the team down. I don't need you to start yelling at me. And Roy just quietly comes and sits down, and he says, I'm not here to yell at you. And they just sit there together in silence. Meanwhile, it cuts to the locker room, and the team is all in there still trying to figure out what just happened and why Isaac is so upset, and they kind of come to the conclusion that they just assume it's obvious Isaac is gay, and then there's this conversation about how statistically more people in the locker room are probably gay, and the team just agrees that they don't need to discuss it any further. They just need to support Isaac. Sam Abasama is one of the players, and he just says, all Isaac needs now is our support. And during that scene, while everybody's kind of talking and they're making the assumption about Isaac, right, they just continue to show Colin. And he's still holding a secret because of that stigma that culture has placed on him, particularly the professional sports culture. And so Coach Lasso, as the kind of conversation ends, he calls the team to focus. Okay, we got a second half to play. And, and the camera moves in on Colin, and his eyes are red, and you can tell that his heart is racing, and he just interrupts. And he says, whoa, 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 hold on hold on. And he stands up and he says, Isaac's not gay. And then the scene ends. And the scene shifts back to Roy and Isaac, and they're sitting there in this, this boot room. And Roy says to Isaac, I don't know what happened out there, but I do know whatever it was isn't what you're really angry about, is it? And Isaac, with tears in his eyes, he just shakes his head. And so Roy says, trust me, you got to go deal with that or you're going to screw up whatever it is you actually do care about. 
With that, the scene goes back to Colin. He's standing in the locker room with everybody. He's obviously told his teammates, and he just says, so we cool? And all the teammates start to encourage him. Of course, yeah, we cool. Of course, of course, a thousand percent. And then Danny Rojas, one of the players, says, you're gay, big whoop, big whoop. But we don't care, right, guys? We don't care. And when he says that, Ted, like, interrupts him. He interrupts all this encouragement. He says, no, hold up, hold up, hold up. Colin, we do care, you know, we do care. And then he gives this great speech. He says, you know, when I was growing up in Kansas City, I had a buddy named Stevie Jewell. Now, he was a huge Denver Broncos fan. I thought this would be super pertinent for you all. He says, but we were all growing up smack dab in the middle of Chiefs country, so he used to catch a lot of guff for it, you know. But me, me, I told him, I don't care. I don't care. And I didn't, you know, I didn't care that he wasn't. But then 19, what was it, 97, 98, he had to watch back-to-back Super Bowls with the Denver Broncos in them all by himself. And the first one, he ate an entire seven-layer dip from Price Chopper all by himself. Big old thing. And it just wrecked his stomach. Apparently, he destroyed the bathroom in his parents' basement. The rumor was that it caused $9,000 worth of damage. Ted says, can you imagine? To a toilet, 9000 bucks. He says, but next year, he did the exact same thing all by himself. He must have thought it was good luck or something. I don't know. I wasn't there because I didn't care. He goes, but I should have cared, you know? I should have supported him. I should have been at at his house both them years, sharing that seven-layer dip with my friend while his garbage team wins back-to-back Super Bowls. And after a moment, Colin, who's just revealed this incredibly intimate truth of his life to all his friends. He looks a little confused, and he says to Ted, Coach, did you just compare being gay to being a Denver Broncos fan? And Ted kind of realizes his blunder, and he says, you know what, I did. I did, and I regret it. Sorry about that. Shouldn't have done that. And the conversation then shifts to this funny like scene where all these European footballers are asking, what in the world are the Denver Broncos? And Ted jumps in. He's like, that's a great question. It's an American football reference, an absolute fumble situation. But the point is, he gets back to the point, And he says this. He says, Colin, we don't not care. We care very much. We care about who you are and what you must have been going through. Yeah? But hey, from now on, You don't have to go through it all by yourself. And Jamie adds, yeah, you hear that? You got us, mate, and we got you. And the scene is coming to an end. They all come to the team huddle for the second half. And after they, you know, do their hands in the middle and shout it out, you see Colin, and he's breathing this huge sigh of relief. And that sigh is this relief, is the sign of freedom. It's the binding up of a broken heart. It's a release from a captivity of fear. And later on, we find that really what was driving Isaac so frustrating was he couldn't figure out what was wrong with him, why Colin wouldn't share his secret with him. And he goes and he meets him at his house and he says, what about me made you think that I couldn't be trusted, that you couldn't trust me with it? And Colin just says, it's not you. I was 99% sure you would, but there was 1% chance of me that was afraid. And they have a great conversation, and they come together, and 
And we see this beautiful, beautiful picture of what happens when we learn from that person that we call those people. And if we could learn to live out the wisdom of seeing those people, wherever they are, whatever stigma they bear, whether it's a stigma that comes with poverty or sexuality or gender or race or a stigma that comes with immigration status or education, if we can start to see those people wherever they are, not as people to exclude or shame, but as heroes of the story. And why are they heroes of the story? Because many of them are the ones who persist in love and generosity and mercy, those divine things in the face of stigma and shame and secrets, and they become icons of the divine for us. And when we learn to stand with them, what's called solidarity, something powerful happens. Because solidarity heals broken hearts and unlocks the shackles of shame in our world. Now, how does it do that? By simply saying, you're not alone. You belong. You're not alone. You belong. Regardless of what you do, regardless of who you are, regardless of any secret, you belong. And people who stand in solidarity with those living under a stigma become allies. And when we live in solidarity with those people, we ourselves become icons of Emmanuel, God with us. Because isn't that what God does in the person of Jesus? Take on flesh and come and stand with us, those people. So in just a moment, we're going to receive communion. And as we do that, I want to encourage you to just give pause and ask yourself, what is it that God's inviting you into today? Right, as you come and receive the, the cup, which is a representation of the blood of Christ, which was shed for everyone, and as you receive the bread, which is a representation of the body of Christ that was broken for you, that Jesus himself was othered, as you hold those today, maybe consider who the others are in your life and how you could become an ally. Maybe you sense an invitation to volunteer with one of our partners in hope who serve people suffering from a societal stigma. And I want to encourage those of you that, that you really into the Jesus peacemaking path is to memorize the blessing of Jesus for the stigmatized that's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12, right? Where Jesus says, blessed are the poor, right? Jesus says, blessed are those ble that, that beatitude. Like there's a blessing that's found in them. And so as we sing this song together, as we pause you're encouraged to just take a few moments and ask, what's God inviting you into? If you're here today, and this is the first time you've ever experienced communion, you are welcome to come to the table. We believe that this is God's table, not ours. We don't get to decide who comes. It's an opportunity for us to experience and express the love of God. And that's what we find in this bread and in this juice, a demonstration, a symbol of just how much God loves all of us. So we're going to sing these songs, have communion. I invite you to stand right now and come and be served. And then we're going to pray for Spooky Palooza together, a couple of announcements, and then Dennis is going to give you a blessing to get you out of here to enjoy your week.